Hello and welcome once again to Wrestling Memories Then and Now on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. You can listen to us too on our uh, website. Yes, our little web stream we have cooking at uh, radionorthland.org. And we're available on the TuneIn Radio app and you can check out some episodes. Uh, we got to get them uh, going a little bit. Uh, got to give them an extra nudge over there at the Offshoots Network. We do have episodes there too. And at our radionorthland.org, uh, 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 we do have uh, a fa- uh, SoundCloud page. That's the words I was trying to get. Uh, Glenn Brogg is back again, and uh, boy, back with us. Uh, he took a little bit of a, a break here. He was resting in between his post-rock riddle, uh, uh, I guess, um, exhaustion. Uh, he's back, though. Uh, you missed out on Chris Curtis last week. He was fun telling AWA stories, but I think we're going to get uh, more than just AWA stories from our guest today. But I welcome down deep in the heart of Texas in that mobile studio, ready to roll once again. He's uh, he's, he's properly hydrated. He's got uh, good things on his mind, ready questions to ask. He's the Grizzle Vet, Mike McCurdy. I don't know about properly hydrated, man. Are we allowed to do product placements? Because, you know, Rockstar Endurance, peach and iced tea, 300 milligrams of caffeine, man. This is what's uh, getting you going today. That's keeping you up. That's keeping you upright. I mean, the Grizzle Vet's got to stay hydrated, and you know it's it's not always uh, just it's easy has to stay awake. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and you know who that voice is? That's the voice of our guest. He's back, and this time uh, we got the Grizzle Vet here to welcome him as well. Oh man, he worked. He's worked uh, the territory days. Last time we had him on, all we talked about was just a couple of years that he spent in the AWA as part of a tag team championship team with gorgeous Jimmy Garvin. There's a lot more to this, man. And heck, we might not even get into the, you know, mid to late 80s, but we'll see what happens because there's so much to talk about, so much more to explore with our guest, who's so very kind and generous to uh, uh, take uh, part here today and to give a little bit of his uh, time in that retirement life, enjoying it nonetheless. It's an honor to welcome uh, professional, former professional wrestler, Mr. Electricity Steve Regal. And uh, right out the, the shoot today when we, uh, we, we connected, it sounds like you're full of energy. The retired life has been good to you, my friend. Uh, life has been good to me. I must say, uh, you know, I have a lot of friends that are dead, probably over a hundred of them when I count that are my age or younger that was in our business. And for me to reach 68 and be healthy, no high blood pressure, no cholesterol, all that, I, I feel blessed. <laughs> Absolutely, man. And you're, you're so up and just in, you know, it's getting me awake. Mike had take a little bit of the, you know, a little extra, uh, you know, enhancement, a little, uh, energy drink, but this is waking me up because what I'm looking at is a winter, uh, wonderland starting to happen out here. So I need things to keep me positive up here, especially when we get to the latter part of November and December, Steve, you are no <laughs> stranger to those. Oh uh, God, I remember gee, man, I'm so glad to be down. I've been down here for 20 years and I haven't experienced any snow, ice, whatever. I mean, it gets cold like 50 degrees, maybe twice a year. It's paradise. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I have family down in that area. And boy, they, uh, yeah, they definitely have taught me, but yet I think they want me to come down and visit more often. And if the schedule allows, I definitely would get going. But yeah, Steve, last time we were on, we were talking AWA 1984 to like maybe 86. So we got all the way up to your tag team title controversy with uh, with Jimmy and the Road Warriors. We even talked about your Remco doll, which is a, a collector's item if someone has that thing in pristine condition. So, man, we left the door open for a lot of things that we could fire away on with you today, uh, along now with my co-host, the Grizzled Vet. Okay shoot away all right all right okay let's uh 
Mike, I think because you know we didn't have you on, uh, you know, have you on the first time around because of scheduling commitments, and uh, I know you're always in that mobile studio hooking up uh, interview topics for the next few weeks. I'm going to let you kind of, it's kind of, let's go free form here and and, and talk. I'm going to let you ask a few questions. We could talk a little bit about the early years of Steve. I know you have some world class stuff for him, but I'm going to let you get in uh, with the early stuff in this first segment. All right. Well, kind of where I'd like to start with is well, like you said, right about the time frame you were in. Uh, the first time he was on, you said it was like 84 to 86. 86 is when he also went to uh, World Class Wrestling Association here in Dallas, Texas, the Sportatorium. I'd like to talk a little bit about that with you for a few minutes and sure. just kind of what that was like because at the time frame you came in, that was that transition between what was you know World Class Championship Wrestling and then what became World Class Wrestling Alliance. It was that 86 time frame. Things were changing a little bit. Black Bart was a champion. Chris Adams was a champion at that point. You had Rick Rude coming in. So it was a transition point. So I'd like to know kind of what was it like going into that territory at that time during that transition where a lot of people think that maybe that was kind of where world class started to maybe not decline, but, you know, the the atmosphere kind of changed. Well, actually what happened was at that particular point in time, as I recall, you know, I am 68 years old, but (laughs) – I, uh, I recall that in 86, 87, Vince was taking, already taking over the world. You know what I mean? He was uh, stealing promo- uh, wrestlers, and he's, he's, uh, he'd already had Hulk and some guys there. And I don't think the promoters, including Vern Gagne and the AWA, Vernon Gregg, uh, realized that, you know, this guy's going to take over. They didn't think he could do it. You know, they didn't really pay attention. If they would have banded together, maybe they could have stayed together or something. They tried that. It didn't work. But the bottom line is... Vince was going to take over the world WCW down in world class in, in Dallas, the times are going to change. And Vince was going to come in and take over too, no matter what they did. So they were trying to form alliances with other guys and, you know, Vern and uh, Memphis worked together, you know, try to put shows together, but it just, you know, it was a juggernaut. Uh, you know, Vince was a multi-billionaire or close to it. And, uh, you know, he was just buying all the TV and doing what he had to do and making what he has a product today, you know, which is a worldwide thing. Well, part of the thing also is that was at the time where uh, Fritz and World Class, they were they had gone away from the NWA, and World Class Wrestling Alliance was kind of his, people say kind of his idea of possibly coming like a national brand. He was looking to, but once again, it was still pretty much a Texas brand. Uh, you know, obviously the Von Erichs were, you know, the biggest stars. But when you were coming in, you got to work with guys like, you know, Chris Adams, John Tatum, you were in there with, you know, Iceman King Parsons, Brickhouse Brown. There was a lot of great talent in the Texas area at that time. So, you know, being that that was a hotbed territory and all that, you know, when you first went in, you know, what was going on in the territory at that time? And, you know, what was it like getting to work with some of these guys? Like I said, it was still a hot area at the time. Yes, it was. And and I went down there from uh, Minneapolis and I believe it was 86. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to be honest with you, I, there was such good talent there. I, I to be honest with you, I was, I was there only there for about six months. I got the Texas State heavyweight belt, and then I dropped it to, um, um, I forget the kid's name, but uh, a stalwart down there that uh, you know was with the territory. But the bottom line was, I was going on my last run. I was getting ready to retire. I was 35 years old. So I wanted to go see Dallas. I wanted to work for them. I heard they paid good, and, and they did. And then from there, I went to Charlotte. But I was only there for about six months. So my memory, I remember John Tatum. He and I teamed up quite a bit. Uh, Iceman Parsons and I traveled together back in Atlanta, back in the late seventies, we were starting out together almost. And, um, 
let's see, Chris Adams, excellent, excellent guy. He, he's gone, I guess. I mean, and Gino Hernandez or vice versa, whatever. But it, it just, um, you know, it's kind of like a, a, my last, you know, run. I went from Texas to North Carolina and uh, six months worked for Dusty. And then I went up to Vince and I wasn't doing it to further my career. I was doing it to make a bankroll. I parked my family back in Indianapolis, our hometown, and let them sit there. And I went around, you know, I wanted to make a bankroll to come home because, you know, I knew the end was coming and, and I didn't, Vince didn't like little guys and I didn't particularly like Vince or his style, but you know what? I did go to work for him for three months. He paid me well. And uh, what I did was travel for about nine months a year and then parked it at home, built my family a home and, uh, you know, got a real job. <laughs> Now, when you went into uh, world-class, like I said, you're only there six months, and um, from what I understand, the territory days and all that, that's kind of how it was. You went in, you worked maybe six months, and then you would move on to something else. You know, sometimes the guys would come back. But when you were there, you know, I've heard a lot of this, and I still hear the stories now. Did you see that it was still more focused, like the stars were obviously, you know, Fritz's boys, Carrie and Kevin, and it was still kind of focused on – the Von Erichs, they were still like the top guys. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they were the top guys. And I worked with Kevin and Carrie. I worked with all of them and, and great guys. But God almighty, man, there must be a curse on that family. All them boys overdosed or whatever they did. I think there's only one left. Kevin or? Um, Kevin is the only one left, yeah. Yeah, and he's in Hawaii because I, I, I chat with him occasionally on Twitter. But, uh, geez, it's a sad story. But, uh, God, what talent they had and what bodies, uh, you know, Carrie had and, and you know, what potential that was lost at a very young age for that family. It's just really tragic. So what was the sportatorium like? I mean, it's one of those classic auditoriums that, you know, a lot of the guys still talk about, you know, right along with like, you know, Portland Sports Arena, the Cow Palace, you know, the sportatorium in Dallas, Texas, that's a legendary Oh, that, that's a legend. Yeah, and, and you mentioned the Cow Palace in Portland. I've been in all of them. And the sportatorium is one of the classics. I mean, that building right there depicts professional wrestling in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I mean, that that is it. And the Portland Sports Arena, same thing, and the Cal Palace. You know, whatever outfit was going in there when I was working for them, whatever, you know, Don Owens in the Northwest and California was through Vern, but uh, they had a crowd that was with it. It was always sold out. It was so energetic. I mean, you could go out there and uh, pick your nose and get a response from the people. You know what I mean? It was so easy to wrestle and perform in front of those people because they were with it. You know what I mean? Now you just said, you know, you got to perform in the cow palace in San Francisco. Um, I'm originally from California. I moved out to Texas about three and a half years ago. Um, cow palace. You said you went in there through Vern. Um, I believe, yeah, so I believe that's been after the Roy Shires time where big time wrestling. Yeah. Yes. Is that was that's the cow right. palace? That was way after that. Yeah. That was that was a cow palace. Is that the building I'm thinking of, or am I mistaken? Glenn, do you know? Uh, I, th- I you, think you have some reference on that one. I did not recall Vern promoting through the cow palace. No, no, Vern did promote out there. He promoted in Oakland as well as San Francisco, and he also had one of the super clashes out, okay. out at the cow palace. Right, so, right, right. Yeah, it right. was it was that's on that rotation. I, I thought, oh man, I forgot. You know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're all yeah, here. To, it hey, it's a conversation. <laughs> we're all here to help out, man. This is a laid back exactly. chat that is wrestling memories then exactly. and now, man. But yeah, you made it out yeah. too. That you were at the cow palace. Uh, you also uh, you talked about. Portland. Uh, we'll talk. We'll get into those more in detail. But Mike, uh, the Sportatorium was definitely uh, what you want to talk about. Do you have any more questions, uh, Texas centric, Mike? Um, I think I've kind of got the Texas centric, uh, you know, portion out of the way. I just kind of want to get a little bit of his memory on, uh, you know, world class because, like I said, that was that transition time. That was when it was becoming World Class Wrestling Association, and a lot of here, 
the guys here in this area think that it was a different time and it quit being world-class at that time because the checks weren't for Southwest sports. So I was kind of curious what the, what the transition was and there was any kind of a difference at that point in time. Definitely. And uh, uh, Steve, it was Brian Adias. Yes, that's right. Brian, Brian, Adias. Brian Adias. Yeah. Yeah. Great yeah, worker. Yeah. Great worker. Okay, so we're going to go from Texas you know, into 1986 to go back a little bit further back to like 76. I want to talk about some of your early years in breaking into the pro wrestling business. And, of course, your father-in-law is uh, was Wilbur Snyder. And uh, Wilbur, right. along with Dick Affliss, a.k.a. Dick the Bruiser, had the World Wrestling Association, which was operated out of Indianapolis, uh, that Indiana area, and into Illinois. Uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit about how you broke into the business, but I want to talk about how you, you got into training and worked your way up into the business, and especially under, uh, was it under really the watchful eye of Wilbur, and how did you benefit from maybe from from Wilbur uh, being the promoter as far as maybe having people, you know, look you know, out for you or help train with you? What was that like uh, training and getting yourself prepared for a life in wrestling uh, and, and also, uh, you know, being the uh, son-in-law of, of one of the guys uh, running the place? Well, how, how it all happened was uh, Wilbur's son, Mike, uh, was hauling the wrestling ring back in 1970, 71, okay? And I was just, uh, Cindy and I were married. We are living in Indianapolis. I just had a construction job. I did construction stuff. And Mike... Uh, Asked me one day, he said, hey, I'm, I'm going to quit hauling this ring. You want to do it? And I said, sure. So I started for Bruiser Wilbur hauling the wrestling ring to the matches. And then, uh, you know, Mike started refereeing a little bit and then went on to wrestle for a very short time because he's a smaller guy, but hell of an athlete, but a small guy. But uh, I started hauling the ring and then I refereed and selling pictures at the matches. And, you know, when I think back on it and look back on it, I probably should have stopped right there because I was making more money refereeing, setting the ring up and selling <laughs> pictures than I did when I started wrestling. <laughs> but everybody starts at the bottom, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I, I worked for Bruiser Wilbur. For, and then in uh, 73, 74, somewhere around there, I told Wilbur, I said, Wilbur, hey, I want to get in wrestling because I, I saw Mike my uh, brother-in-law do it and I said well if he can do it I can you know so uh little did I know but geez I got that crap beat of mine for about a year I set up the ring every day in a big hot barn in Indianapolis and Wilbur and Rene Goulet Sergeant Jacques Goulet was there at the time and Big John Studd so they'd come over and beat the crap out of me make me puke and you know really get a respect for the business and learn and and Wilbur, of course, was a great amateur wrestler. He could stretch anybody. So I, I got a very good education in the basics. And uh, finally, uh, uh, after, and then I'm working for Bruiser, of course, which in that territory at that time, they're only running two or three towns a week. They weren't, you know, every day like uh, Atlanta was and Charlotte and all those places, you know. They didn't have to. They were in Chicago and Bern, and they were all partners. And, you know, they only worked... So I finally got tired of that. Spike Huber and I had a good run there as a tag teams. And in, you know, uh, 75, uh, in the middle of it, I said, uh, hey, Wilbur, where can I go and, you know, learn, you know, really learn it and try and get it pushed to the top? So he said, man, let me call it out. Anyway, long story short, that was my first trip to Atlanta in 78 with Tommy Rich and good friends of mine. I had a lot of fun down there. And learned a lot. Ole Anderson was a booker, and uh, that's where I started. I worked for him for a while. Then he said, hey, why don't you go to Charlotte for a little bit? Did that. Moved the family there and stayed with him for a while. Then I went from there to Memphis and, you know, uh, Portland, the, uh, the whole nine yards. And 
that's how it used to be in this business. You don't, you know, get trained in a, a room with a bunch of guys and then go uh, star in a show. You know what I mean? You've got to get your, your uh, seasoning, you know? I mean, you've got to become a veteran and be able to get in there with a broomstick and carry on a match. And finally, after about two or three years, I got it. And then, of course, I was smaller than anybody else. And I, you know, it took me so long to gain weight. I was eating like 7,500 calories a day just to get big, you know, and working my butt off in the gym. But it paid off, and I, I got a good run, and Vern liked me. And fortunately, his son was a smaller guy, too, so he didn't mind, you know, pushing us. And uh, Jimmy and I won the world belts from the World Warriors. And you know what? In those days, when I I look into some of the research too for uh, you know working with your your father in law and also uh, Dick the Bruiser, another guy kind of in a similar situation, a guy who which you mentioned uh, of whom you tagged up with uh, for a, a good portion of the early part of your pro wrestling career was Spike Huber. And uh, what do you remember? You know, you guys getting kind of teamed together. I mean, of course, uh, Spike was. Uh, Briefly, didn't he? Dick the Bruiser was his father-in-law. So, what was that kind of like? I mean, not only being teamed up with him, but in that situation, and uh, you know, dealing with some of the guys, uh, you know, who are working for the company alongside you. Well, Spike married uh, Bruiser's daughter, correct, Michelle. Now, listen to this story: Spike marries Michelle. They get divorced a few years later because Spike. The only territories he ever worked was Indianapolis and Memphis with me. We went down to Memphis because Jerry and uh, Bruiser had a thing going on. So we went down there and Spike met a girl and, you know, had an affair and and Michelle divorced him and remarried. And then Spike went with this girl. And then all of a sudden in the last few years, he's back with Michelle married and they're living in Memphis and back to, you know, Michelle and Spike again. So, you know, that's strange in of, of itself, but, uh, Bottom line is, uh, Spike and I, Spike didn't want to travel around that much. He went to Memphis with me because it's only 500 miles. You can go home if you want on the day off. But um, he didn't want to really, he did the same thing. He hauled the ring and, and refereed and then started wrestling. And I think he went to Vince for like two weeks or something or a month. I, he never really, you know, and he was a talented guy and a good friend of mine, and one of my best friends but he just didn't get the seasoning he needed to go somewhere and step in on top or in the middle and, and make a difference, you know, mm-hmm. but, I, uh, and, great times with him. Yeah. And I think, uh, he even had an even shorter uh, run, uh, down around that same time in the world-class area, if I'm not mistaken. I think he did go down there for a bit. Yeah, you're right. I, Cause we kind of lost track when I was traveling so much. And my whole goal with the professional wrestling business was I knew I wasn't a 300 pound monster. I knew I wasn't going to be a major superstar. And if you let your ego get involved, you're going to get in trouble. So it's a business. All right. I, I want to go do business. I, if, uh, you know, if you want to make me world champion, great, pay me. If you want me to do this for this guy, pay me. You know, that's all I ask. And at, back then we got paid on the gate we brought in. So if you bring in a good gate, you get a good payoff. You know, there's nights I walked out of St. Paul City Center with four or five grand. But, you know, that's not every week. But, you know, that was the name of the game. I was a true professional. If, you, if I'm going to do this and you want me to do this, okay, pay me. Pay me what is uh, normal for that, what you pay your other guys on top, and I'm happy. And that's what I did. I went around and made as much money as I could, saw the handwriting on the wall in the late 80s or mid to late 80s, and knowing the promotion, knowing my father-in-law's promoter and the people I've worked for, I was smart enough to realize that Vince is taking over the world. He's buying all the talent. He's got the Hulk. He's got everybody going there. And he's going to, you know, swoop up everybody, and he did. And now there's some competition with him. AEW and NWA are starting up again. 
And, you know, they're going to compete. That's fine. But it's not like it was back in the territory days. Oh, no, no, not at all. I mean, a guy like like yourself, I mean, working for, uh, you know, Bruiser and, and Duke. And also, you you know, in that early part of your career, you got to uh, work with Vern and AWA, which kind of started out with uh, some pretty nice spots on the card at a, at a, at a, at a you know, just a very well-known, uh, when AWA fans talk about wrestling, Midwest wrestling fans talk about a venue that is no longer with us. You had a chance to uh, work at, at a very interesting place, the International Amphitheater in Chicago. Illinois, you know, that was kind of like in and of itself a wrestling Madison Square Garden of the Midwest, uh, one of them at oh, least. Oh, that, yeah, that, that was a mecca of the Midwest, absolutely. Yeah, can you talk about, uh, you know, your first couple of times working there and, and the atmosphere? Because, I mean, always some wrestlers can remember walking in certain arenas and they can remember just feeling or the smells, the scents, the stuff that just oh, reminds you yeah. and takes you back to a time and can take you right into the moment. And it has to be the amphitheater. has got to be on the list. I mean, you talked earlier about oh, just sportatoriums and your comp palaces. That was a place, man. That was the place, one of the places. Now, garden, the garden I never worked till I worked one time for Vince, but... And it wasn't the same for me because I wasn't as over or as well-known in New York when I first went in there, which is fine. But when I went to Chicago after a while and they got to know us from TV, Spike and myself included, and of course I started on the opening match or two, second or third match, whatever, but it was electrifying. These people in Chicago were rabid, rabid fans. I mean, if, when, it, it was such a crescendo. It would shake the ring almost when they cheered or booed somebody. And of course I was started out as a baby face guy, you know, a nice guy. And I just was amazed at how the response I could get out of the crowd. And I, and I loved it. And, you know, that's the start of my career. I said, God, it's a great, and Chicago was a, was a great wrestling town. Oh, Bob Luce. <laughs> that's what I was going to say. You uh, got to have some memories of Bob Luce. I mean, the guy we watch now on YouTube clips uh, uh, from a generation uh, ago. And, just, oh, man, the guy was just charisma. He could. He was a man who, who could probably sell you anything. Just give him the topic or give him the item and he'll sell it to you. You betcha. I'll tell you what, I'd want him promoting my product. <laughs> now, you, you, you've done the AWA, you, you work with the WWA, and you mentioned uh, going down and, and to the Atlanta area and working for Georgia Championship Wrestling. I mean, it was down there uh, in that area back in the late 1970s, around 78, where you worked some shows uh, at, at an arena, and speaking of another mecca, the Omni. But you also got oh, to work yeah. with, with a lot of guys, uh, you know, like Ole, and you got to kind of season yourself a little bit with, you know, your Sonny Kings and uh, your Pez Wallys. And you're, uh, even, you even got a chance to work with a young future grappler, Len Denton. Talk about making that move to, to Georgia and uh, kind of uh, adjusting. And, and, you know, they had their own sort of style too and what was that like compared to some of the stuff you work with in the midwest with those promotions in comparison well, to georgia tell, let me tell you how it was in the midwest in indianapolis dick the bruiser had guys like moose Cholock on their card bobby bold eagle guys that were at the end of their careers is all i'm saying they were great performers in their day and they were fine you know for the wrestling business but the only, there was no up-and-comers no young guys on there it was dick the bruiser and wilbur and that was it you know i mean that was your stars and He'd bring in a top heel team or a top heel. The Valiants got over really well. But the bottom line is, when I went to Georgia, I went there to learn the business. And I had been working, you know, two or three nights a week for the Bruiser Wilbur's promotion. And I'd go down to Atlanta, and they worked every night and twice on Saturday. We did two TV shows. They did a TV show on Saturday morning in uh, Columbus, Georgia, and then uh, worked uh, a spot show that night somewhere, Marietta or somewhere. But it it, it, it would help you become a true professional because you work every night and you work with different guys and you work with guys that have been around a little bit. You work with veterans. 
working with Ole was, and that's how you learn the business. It's like Hollywood or football or baseball, any, anything you go into, you got to learn the ropes, you know, you can't walk out and be a superstar. You got to know how to, you know, jazz the people. And, uh, I learned, uh, the hard way I, I would say, but it paid off and I had a great career. And if it would have stayed like it was the territories, I'd be promoting somewhere in a town, you know, in Minneapolis or Vern or Indiana, somewhere there, but that wasn't meant to be. So I, I have no regrets. I had a great career and I made some money and you know, it, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And geez, you know, when a guy looks back at your career, I mean, a younger man like myself, I mean, just checking out the territory stuff is so fascinating. And, you know, results have been, you know, lots of people have printed results of the year. So we can kind of get a track and uh, a lead on what your career was like at, at various points. And I mean, going into to Georgia, you not only, I mean, it must have been like to uh, to, to work with, with Ole, but also you had guys like Mr. Wrestling too. Thunderbolt Patterson, I mean, all characters, oh, uh, yeah. good, bad, yeah. you know, for, for, for whatever in their careers. But, but yeah, yeah, teaming up with a guy who was just uh, making his, you know, claim to fame, I guess, on his way was Tommy Rich, too. So let's, yep. you know, what was, that was a pretty pretty good little locker room. And, but what would you remember kind of being around with Ole and, and Thunderbolt and, and Tommy and guys like that? And especially, I meant, and I got another guy I, I didn't mention was uh, Bill Eady, the mass superstar. I mean, these were some good guys. Again, continuing your education and, and keeping your horizons broadened for pro wrestling, and it's only leading to good stuff for you here. Yes, yes, it was. And uh, speaking of Tommy, God bless him. Tommy was a great performer. He came from the Memphis area in there, and, and Barnett loved him. The promotion loved him. He was a big draw for the girls and the crowd and so forth. But after he left there, I, I don't think he really went anywhere and made a, a lot of money. But I had so much fun with him there. I, I loved the Atlanta Territory because we worked every night. But riding with Tommy, you know, you get to learn and watch him because he was in the main events and stuff. And uh, it was just a, a, a good friendship. And, a, a, you know, if I was a single guy, you know, I would have moved in with Tommy as a, a roommate and, you know, gone around with him. But uh, it was a great time. And he was a great performer. Another guy that uh, you had a chance to work with, uh, you know, in uh, mid-Atlantic now as we move into the Crockett Territory was a guy that uh, we left the, left the, uh, the business in life way too early was uh, Rick McGraw. Quick draw with Rick McGraw because not only did he do stuff in Mid-Atlantic, but he was also really good for, for Jarrett in, in Memphis. Yes, yes. And uh, Rick, God bless him, he just liked to party too much. You know, he uh, OD'd and died in his uh, hotel room. Somebody found him three days later. I mean, it's a sad story. That's why I say there's a lot of stories like that in our business because the fame goes to your head and the drugs are there and the girls are there and, you know, you're going to take advantage of it. And he overdid it and, uh, you know, fell asleep one night in the hotel room. They found him a couple of days later. So God rest his soul. But he was a hell of a performer for his size. That's oh. for sure. Oh, absolutely. This is Rasslin' Memories Then and Now with our guest, Mr. Electricity, Steve Regal. And uh, Mike McCurdy, uh, I'm going to bring you back into the conversation. We're gonna, uh, we can tap into some of the Memphis stuff, uh, Memphis Territory stuff. Uh, Mike, uh, how's it going back in there for you down in the mobile studio? Oh, it's going great here in the mobile studio, man. Uh, you're talking about the Memphis thing. I was kind of, uh, you know, we're bopping around a little bit here. We're kind of, we're taking, taking Steve all over the... Uh, you know, the timeline here. I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about his uh, Portland run. Okay, so we'll, last minute alteration, we're throwing the audible. <laughs> the grizzle vet wants to go to Portland, and I don't think Steve would have any objections. 
No problem. Yeah, so I'm kind of going with some of the territories. Like I said, you know, being from California, I know about, you know, the San Francisco territory. Obviously, you know, my focus is on Texas. But, you know, Pacific Northwest, that was another big one up, you know, in my neck of the woods and all that. And you got a chance, Steve, to work with a guy that I've had a chance to meet on a couple occasions and definitely a character, definitely a legend in the sport. But a lot of the time when you're there, you work a lot with Playboy Buddy Rose. Oh, yeah. Can you tell us we a little bit about – Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, a couple title changes yeah. there. Many title changes, actually. Not yeah, just the yeah. Pacific Northwest title, yeah. but the Pacific Northwest tag team title where you teamed with uh, Matt Bourne. But just tell us a little bit about work, getting to work with Buddy and just getting to work the, the Portland Territory and Don Owens because, once again, we're talking about major territories and big arenas. Portland Sports Arena was a huge, you know, mecca oh, at yeah. that time. Yes, it was. So what yes, was it like was. getting to work in that territory with Buddy, working for Don Owens? And all at that time. Well, let me tell you, and like I say, as you travel around, you get more seasoned. And Vern was the one that set that up for me. I think it was back in 1980, 81, somewhere around there. And uh, he said, "You want to go out to Portland?" I said, "Well, what do you think?" He said, "Well, you'll learn how you'll learn how to do, you know, a lot more things, and you, you know, you might get a push." He said, I, "I said okay." So I moved my family out there and loved Donald to death. He paid good, but we worked every night, but we didn't have to travel. I mean. The farthest trip we made was Eugene, Oregon once a month, and it was like, oh, I don't know, maybe 100 miles from Portland. We worked Seattle, which is 160 uh, miles, but we were home on on the weekend. Saturday night was TV, live TV at the Portland uh, Auditorium, and God, there was nothing like that. You know, you're on live TV show, 11 o'clock, and it was the highest rated TV show in the city of Portland. It was amazing, but I loved it because the trips were short. I had my family with me, and I was there probably a year, year and a half, and then I separated a shoulder and went back to Indianapolis uh, and took the family back because I was going to be off for about three months. When I got back in shape, I flew back out to Portland and stayed for another six months and finished out my, you know, the storyline we were working on, and it worked good with the shoulder, like, you know, Playboy Betty Rose put me out, and I sent interviews back for him because I could do that, and it, it was a great time, and you know, uh, Don Owens is a great guy. I don't know if he's still alive. I doubt it, but I had a good time out there. It was a great territory, and uh, you know, home every night is important when you're married. Well, can, um, can you share a couple stories about you know working with Buddy Rose? Because we've had a lot of guests on here that have had a chance to either be trained by Buddy, worked with Buddy. You know, Ed Wiskowski, obviously, I've talked with him many times. He was you know partners with Buddy in their school and all that. But can you share a little bit of stories about Buddy Rose? Because obviously there's the Portland Terror, and he was also – a you know name in the AWA as well as the WWF, so you guys kind of followed a lot of the same territories. We did, we did, yes, we did, and, and he's a consummate professional. Buddy Rose is one of the best, one of the top in the business, and he was so uh, magnanimous for people calling him Doughboy because he called himself Playboy Buddy Rose, which of course you know that's he's not a playboy. He looks like a big fat slob sometimes, right? So. We call him Doughboy, and he he went with it. And I do interviews with a Doughboy in my hand, a Pillsbury Doughboy in my hand. Anyway, it was a lot of fun. And he was a consummate professional, and he made a mark for himself out there in Portland and stayed there for a while because, hey, you know, you get, you're making money, you're home every night. It's a it's a fairly easy way to work, and uh, Don loved him. And, you know, I had so many matches with him and so so much good times. I can't even uh, – geez, he was a great guy. Yeah, there was a couple uh, – you had a couple of Northwest title changes. Uh, you were the champ that defeated Buddy Rose. You also won it in a tournament because there was a couple things in there where, you know, title was vacated. But both those title runs, I believe, were against, you know, changes were against Buddy. You also had 
him and Rip Oliver defeated you and Matt Bourne. You guys, you and Matt Bourne traded the tag belts with Buddy and Rip Oliver, you know, quite a few occasions. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Matt, Matt was a great, great hand, too. Of course, his father was in the business, too, but Matt was great. Um, Rip Oliver, one of the best pros out there. And, you know, like I say, it was a smaller territory, and the guys were happy with their spot and where they were. They didn't. They had been traveling around or had been, you know, got their seasoning and they kind of parked it there. And that was fine for them. I knew I wasn't going to live there the rest of my life, although it's a beautiful country. But uh, I, I knew, you know, I'm going to stay there a year or two if possible and make as much money as I can and then go on with my life. But, you know, the talent out there was uh, Jimmy Snook was out there before I was out there. There was a, a lot of guys start there and, and, and it uh, it has a great history. Now, as far as Portland Sports Arena goes, you mentioned Saturday nights, you mentioned the TV there. Their TV from the Portland Sports Arena, that was a live thing on Saturdays because what they would do is they would show, if I remember right, they would show the card to a certain point, but then they would stop. You wouldn't get the main event. You wouldn't get, like, the top match for that night. On right, TV. right. They wanted you to right. come to the sure, Portland they Sports Arena. They tease you to come to the arena, yeah. But what was it like working in that Portland Sports Arena and all that? Because now I believe it's, it's either a church or a bowling alley. I think it's a church now. Yeah. It's so you can still go in there and they still have like some of the pictures on the wall and things like that in the church. Let me tell you, brother, how hard it was to work in that Portland sports arena. They had no air conditioning. We're in the dead of summer and, you know, Oregon's not known for heat, but, you know, it was warm. And in that ring, if you weren't in shape, and there were a couple of times when I first started there on a Saturday night, you could gas because you're sweating profusely. It was that, I mean, it's not like an arena somewhere where there's air circulating. There's, it's a big arena. It's a small arena, and the people were packed in tight, and it got hot, brother, and we're up in that ring. And there were times guys have heat exhaustion or pass out because I'm telling you, every every time I, I wrestled in that ring, I sweated. My hair was soaking wet within five minutes. It was a hotbed, but, you know, it was, it was a place, and, you know, I, I pulled through as a professional, of course, but I can tell you, it was a like a steam bath, man. It was hot. So kind of, you know, basically the Portland Sports Arena and kind of the Sportatorium got that in common because I've heard many stories at the Sportatorium. It was, you know, hot as Hades in the summer, and then in the wintertime it was freezing cold because there was no air conditioning, no heating system in that building whatsoever. Exactly. We'll 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 go into the into the time frame that you know that Glenn was alluding to. Sorry, Glenn, I, I'm bopping around a little bit, but I'm I'm going to hear some stories from my my territories that I'm familiar with. Hey, no but, no uh, no worries, Mike, because I, I, when we <laughs> when we come back when it's my turn, I still have like one one more uh, Portland question to ask. So don't worry, we're having fun. We got a great guest, man. How could you not? How could you object to to asking uh, this man's questions? He's an open book today. Well, go ahead, bounce around, man. You're a rubber ball, my friend. Well, I'm having a great time talking with this guy. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I got to join in on this interview this week uh, since I missed out on the first time he was on the show. I'm having an enjoyable time, and hopefully he'll come back again and we can talk more because we still haven't gotten to the WWF uh, you know, <laughs> portion of the program yet. So, Glenn, I think we might be doing show number three. But uh, Glenn alluded to it, and we were talking about it when you were going into Memphis territory, another – once again, you were in, like, a lot of the hotbed territories. Memphis wrestling, Memphis territory, another – you know, just hotbed professional wrestling in the territory days. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that when you first went into Memphis and kind of your memories from there. Oh, yeah, geez. Uh, that was my first place I went. I went to Charlotte. I went to Atlanta and Charlotte and then came back to Indianapolis and realized, you know, I got to go somewhere else because I can't make the money here in Indy because, you know, they only work two or three nights a week. So I talked to Wilbur, my father-in-law. He said, well, let me call Memphis and see what Jerry Jarrett's doing, blah, blah, blah. 
anyway, he got me booked. I went down, and the rest is history. But and I was a baby face there, which you know, later in my career, I, I was a heel with Vern at AWA because they had too many baby faces, and I could be a heel too. So that helped me make money and so forth. So I have no regrets on that. But when I went to Memphis, I was a strict baby face, had a great drop kick. And uh, everybody loved me. They, you know, I looked innocent and, you know, uh, not, you know, and Memphis was not known for big muscle-headed guys. I mean, they've had a few come through there. But, you know, you can go in there my size and, and make a name. And, and Jerry Jarrett used me quite well. And, uh, you know, the first time I went in was just a learning session. And then I went back from there. I forget where I went. But then I came back with Spike. And we had a good little run there, too. And Jerry paid well. And it was a lot of oh, Memphis was a lot of fun because everything was fairly close except on Wednesdays when we'd have to drive from Memphis to Evansville, Indiana. But, uh, that was the longest trip of the week. So, but, uh, I had a lot of fun with the guys down there and, uh, Jerry, I, I got the utmost respect for Jerry. Jerry, he's one of the greatest, greatest promotional minds in the business. And I'm sure he's working with Vince now. He did years ago. I'm sure he's still there or retired living happily. I don't know, whatever he is. I hope he's happy, but, uh, he was a great guy. And Jerry, the King, well, I got to work with him. You know, I mean, uh, I, I, they had some great talent there. Bill Dundee and, you know, the guys, I I have no regrets, no uh, qualms about anybody I've met in the business. You know, there's some assholes you meet, but uh, bottom line was everybody was nice to me and uh, truly professional, and that's all I ask, you know. You know, you don't have to like me, but be a professional, you know. Yeah, Jerry's actually involved now with, uh, it's called the Jarrett Parsons Wrestling Network. It's a uh, streaming channel through, and you can get that through your Roku service. I don't know if you're much into the streaming and all that, but he's got his own. Man, I can, I can hardly, I can hardly find myself on the computer. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, hardly, I have trouble looking up YouTube. <laughs> if you ever get a chance, you can find it on Roku. It's called Jared Parsons Wrestling Network, and it's a network just full of all the old classic. I'm sure you're going to find yourself on uh, the Jared Parsons Wrestling Network. Glenn's a little more. Um, into the study of that one. I've watched it a few times, but I think Glenn's probably perused it a bit more than I, but you're probably going to find some of your footage on uh, well, this. Network. You want to go back and watch some of that classic stuff. Well, that's a good tip. And I think I've heard that a long way, but you know what happened was in the last few years, uh, somebody sent me a message. I didn't even know it. There's 66 videos of me on YouTube. So I can type in Mr. Lecter, say Steve Regal, and they all come up and I, I've watched all 65 of them, of course, and, you know, from uh, 1978 through 1987 or whatever. And it was, it was fun to watch myself, you know, and, and now I can tell my grandkids, yeah, go on YouTube. You can see Papa on there, you know, because <laughs> they don't believe me. Oh, you didn't have that. Hey, look at this. <laughs> have they gone on to watch some of that? Have you had a chance to watch oh, yeah, that with that? Yeah. What yeah. do they think of it? I'm kind of curious on that one. You know, you get to, uh, you know, I'm a historian and all that. And part of that is to preserve the history you know, for the next generation, what is it like for, you know, your grandkids and all that to be able to sit down at the computer or, you know, they might stream it on, on their TV. You can do that. Yeah, they might stream um, it, yeah. But, <laughs> what's it like yeah. for them to get to sit down and watch some of this stuff and see you, you know, back in the younger days when you were, you know, throwing that drop kick and coming off them ropes? Oh, they, they love it. I mean, you know, I've got all girls, though. I've only got one grandson, so the girls aren't that interested, you know what I mean? But my grandson is, and he's just now turning 13, and getting into football and sports and stuff. So, and he's back in Indianapolis with my oldest daughter, but we're going up there to see him soon. Oh, I'm sorry. They're coming down to see us. And when he does, I'll see where he stands. But, uh, you know, he's old enough now to realize what it is. And the girls don't care, you know, and, and Papa was the rest of a big deal, you know, yeah, but, uh, 
Yeah, the the my grandson Chase will probably uh, like. Uh, he's at the age now where I'll say, "Hey, let's look at him, see what you think." You know, get his opinion. But he's a pretty good little athlete. He's a smaller guy, but he's a good little athlete. I was a smaller guy too, so I ain't gonna hold that against him. I kind of understand that dynamic of the girls and the boys. I got three kids of my own. Uh, they're young. My oldest is only nine. She'll so be ten next month. But her and her sister, they could care less about wrestling. My son, eight right. years old, right. he's a sponge. He wants to watch it all. He wants to be a pro wrestler. He's still he's already practicing his moves. So oh, I, I can kind of see that it. dynamic now. Yeah, you know, the girls. Well, you got a long way to go, brother. Wait, wait till your girls become teenagers. <laughs> you got some. You got some struggles ahead. Trust me. I have. I have two daughters and three granddaughters. And buddy, when they, when your when your father and your daughter is twelve to seventeen years old, it's hard, man. It's hard. It's hard. Now, to uh, um, beat the crap like out of their boyfriends, you know. There you go. Like I said, my oldest is only going to be is going to be ten. So I still got a couple more years before I have to worry about the yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm scared. I'll just rely on you know locking myself in the room and watching wrestling and all that to kind of clear my head while you know mom deals with uh, you know all the dramatics of the exactly. Of the yeah, don't and all yeah, that. don't think about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, Glenn, I'm going to pass the microphone back over to you, man. You said you had a Portland question. Well, yeah, I mean, you talked about Portland. Uh, I mean, I looked at a couple guys here that you had a chance to work for, work with in the ring and, and compete against, and a guy that has uh, had some, a lot of cult status through the years uh, with some of the, uh, the the smart fans, they call them on the internet, is a, a guy who was a little bit mysterious in, in, in his life as well as death, uh, was Chris Colt. What can you remember in Portland of, of working with Chris Colt, who was, for, you know, he travel different territories but he was pretty much a, a mainstay for a good periods of time in that portland area he was definitely uh not your conventional uh run-of-the-mill type of wrestler he definitely was a character uh he was and to be honest with you i think he came through there for about two weeks i mean it was a short run you know um i you know i, I recall he was a blonde-haired guy and had a pretty good bike um you know, to be honest with you, I don't. Re- I remember the name Chris Colton. I know he was there, but I don't remember any epic battles with him or any matches. Or if I did, it was you know something that I just glossed over and waited till you know something else would happen because I don't recall him getting the push anywhere. But he was a good hand, as far as I remember. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it was kind of around that time too uh, when you know you had the Sawyers made their appearance as well in world class. I mean, Brett Brett Wayne and and of course. Buzz Sawyer, uh, what do you remember um, working with with Buzz out, out there at that time a, a, around 1981? Okay, that's the deal. Yeah, Buzz was there, and when I came in, he was just leaving. But his younger brother, I call him Hacksaw, Brett was there, and Hack and I were good friends, and we teamed up a couple times. And Hack was a smaller guy, but he had you know like Buzz, he wasn't as built as, or as bad as Buzz, but Buzz was a wild man. Of course, he died early too in a car wreck, I guess, but. Um, Hack was a, a great performer, but, you know, he was limited also, kind of like Rick McGraw, because they were short and they had good bodies and they were great talent, but, you know, you can't put him in there against a 365-pound guy that's six foot five. So, you know, they were limited as to how far they could go, and they, they, they did good. They did well. Hack was a hell of a performer, and I don't know. I didn't hear where he went after that. I think he went back to Texas and uh, or somewhere down there, Phoenix somewhere, and, uh, you know, uh, wrestled for a little bit, but then got out. But it's just like any other business, uh, limited business like Hollywood or, or football, baseball, basketball. There's a limited number of participants. And at that time in the United States of America, we had probably 12 to 15 territories you could go to. 
and make money. So, you know, it was, uh, but we only had maybe five, 600 wrestlers total that made a full-time living at wrestling, maybe even less than that. So it was a niche sport. And for you to make money, you had to shine or have somebody make you shine to where you could make your money. And that's where the promotion comes in and the politics and all that kind of stuff. And it's, you know, it's, it's sometimes it can be pretty nasty, but, uh, you know, if you're above it all and, and just be a professional, that's what the promoters appreciate. You know, they don't, they don't want you coming in saying, I'm not going to lose to that guy. And I'm going to lose to that guy. I went in and said, how much are you going to pay me? <laughs> you know, I'll do whatever you want, you know, and mm-hmm. that's where business comes in. Oh, for sure. And uh, also one more thing from Memphis before we get into a different area. Uh, we talked the last time a little bit about, too, uh, a little bit about your time in Memphis in the late 70s, early 80s. And we mentioned the, the Freebirds. But another team that was quite popular uh, at the time out there, and, uh, of course, both of them moved on to very, very different gimmicks uh, in, a, in a few years, over the course of a few years after this, was the Blonde Bombers, Larry Latham and Wayne Ferris. Of course, a lot of the wrestling fans know Larry Latham uh, from his run on his moondog spot and of course wayne ferris the honky-tonk man i mean and he you yeah. know he, he's still out there doing his thing but this was a di- very different honky-tonk man at the time but you had a chance to be in the territory uh, working with larry latham and wayne ferris who uh, were definitely a, a decent little tag team when we look back at the history of tag teams especially oh, were, in memphis they territory great. they were great and for memphis they were fantastic they fit right in man. and they were good guys both of them are great guys good to party with Wayne, God bless him. I'm glad he went on doing what he's doing and made a bunch of money. He deserves it. Uh, I don't know what happened to Moondog. He went out there for a while. I haven't kept track of him, but he had a pretty good gimmick there, too. So, you know, Vince was the mecca at that time. And once you got there and if he liked you, you're going to make some money. And that's what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was right around that time. Uh, yeah, you were working with with those guys uh, for in a, in a, f- a series of matches, uh, especially uh, in, oh, yeah. in that circuit. Yeah. I mean, you were taking up also with another guy who found his way to Vince uh, Coco Ware, who was uh, again, and then Hector Guerrero. You know, I talked about from the Guerrero family. So you were getting into some pretty good matches with some some guys that could really go. And I mean, the Blonde Bombers also had their second Danny Davis at the time. So I mean, Memphis had some definitely. So when you get them some red hot tag teams and feuds. They definitely had some guys that could go. Absolutely. It was a great, great hotbed, great territory. And, you know, and you can't, you couldn't plan that stuff, you know, and just a random phone call here or a guy, maybe a promoter sees somebody from another tape somewhere or something. Hey, let me call you. It's, you know, such a, like you're traveling a hobo almost, you know, <laughs> going to see where the money is. But uh, it's a fascinating sport and I love talking about it because I did it for so many years and thank God, I, you know, I get out of bed pretty slow in the morning. All my joints are shattered, but I'm alive and well and kicking. So I, I'm very thankful because a lot of my compadres are gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, another area that you were, uh, I guess, timing was everything in, in those days of the territories was, I mean, we got we got to hear a lot about this territory in the last 10, 20 years. I mean, just for its history um, was you worked both in Central States Wrestling, but also at the time they were involved with uh, kind of more of a standalone if there was uh, NWA St. Louis Wrestling, of course, wrestling at the Chase and in the Keel Auditorium. Uh, um, what do you remember about heading into that territory and, and getting on that wrestling at the Chase show? Who And at the time, of course, you had, you had Guy Gold, Pat O'Connor, and of course, Sam Muchnick. So, I mean, these were, again, some more icons of the industry, both in the ring with promotion. But what do you remember early on about uh, finding your way to uh, to St. Louis and working at, that, at the Wrestling with the Chase and at the Keel Auditorium? Because, again, there you go, another iconic venue that's no longer with us. 
Right. And, uh, you know, all I remember of that territory, of course, uh, was Harley Race. And he was the uh, impetus that, uh, you know, and I think Spike went down a couple times too. But we went down there and did TV and did this and that. But anyway, I went, went and worked in the territory for Harley for a while. And it was, it was a good territory, but it was a lot of travel. And the money wasn't that great, you know what I mean? Uh, they weren't, you know, selling out big arenas, except Kansas City and St. Louis. But they, uh, you know, at the time, it was just a learning stage for me. You know, and, and Harley, what a great teacher. You know, he took some time to, uh, I worked with him on TV. I wrestled him in, in some shows. And, you know, to work with a master like that, you learn so much just in a 15-minute match that, you you know, you can carry on your career and, and know and learn. And Harley was master. He was the greatest. And also when you think about personalities too, okay. And Harley is the head and shoulders. When you think about that, that St. Louis, Kansas area, that central States area, other guys too. I, when I, you know, I, I think about uh, Rufus R. Jones, when I think about not necessarily for his technical expertise or, or if he can go a Broadway, but he was one of those guys that is definitely was synonymous with that part of the country. Uh, you also Rufus R. Jones and another guy who was always forever associated with central States, Bulldog Bob Brown. Now, what can you recall of, of, of those two uh, definitely unique personalities. I had Chris Curtis on a recent episode of Wrestling Memories then and now, and he shared some some fun stories about about the Bulldog and about ribbing the Bulldog. <laughs> well, I, I didn't mess with Bulldog too much. I mean, he was, I'd, I'd worked with him on TV, but he was probably one of the stiffest guys I've ever worked with. He, he, he didn't, you know, seemed like he didn't know a lot of wrestling. He just had his gimmick he was doing and, you know, it was hard to, you know, wrestle him, you know, Rufus R. Jones, a classic guy. I loved Rufus. He was a great guy and he knew what he would, could do and he did it and got over with the people. Bulldog Bob Brown was like one of the, he's not the quarterback. He was a tackle. You know what I mean? He just, uh, gutted his matches out and, you know, couldn't high fly or couldn't do, you know, a lot of stuff. But it was a, a, a formidable uh, wrestler, don't get me wrong. But, you know, for a young guy like me that wants to high fly and drop kick and do all kinds of things, he wasn't into that, you know. So I, I only worked with him a couple times on TV, but uh, he, was, he was a great performer, but, you know, not my style. You know, I couldn't shine with him because, you know, he, he just had style, you know. And that was when I was younger, too, and I, was, I think it was – I was going down there from Indianapolis before I even really got on the road and was experienced. So I think that's what happened. Mm-hmm. But classic guys, Rufus was a great guy. I loved him, man. Yeah, you worked tags uh, on Rufus. Uh, you mentioned against some some guys, I guess that could probably go a little bit here and they had a little in the tank. Uh, Jerry Brown and Roger Kirby. I mean, later on, uh, you worked with them here, and you also ended up tagging up with a man who ended up becoming a, a whole different animal altogether in the character of the Missing Link. But you had a chance to work with Dewey Robertson. Uh, talk oh, about yeah. with, with memories of Dewey pre Missing Link days, and also uh, against Roger Kirby. There's another guy you think about with the Midwest, a very you know, I guess underrated Roger Kirby and Jerry Brown was another great tag team guy with Buddy Roberts previously. So what can you talk about uh, some of those guys? Oh, they, they were great talent. I mean, you know, Dewey Robertson before he became the missing league, whatever that gimmick was great body, great performer and, and new wrestling. I, I loved working with him. He was great. And then, uh, who was the other guy? Dewey and, uh, uh we had, uh, Roger Kirby. Oh, Roger Kirby. Roger has been ever. He was worked for the Bruiser for a while. And he, in fact, he helped me a little bit in training. But, you know, that guy, Roger Kirby, has the world's record for the squat machine. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That squat machine in the gym that they have. 
I think he did something like 2,000 pounds or something. I mean, the guy was phenomenal in his time. And, of course, after wrestling a few years, you get a few injuries and a few knocks and tickles and tackles. But Roger was a great performer but uh, and made good money, don't get me wrong, but I don't think anybody ever took him and pushed him to be the guy, you know what I mean? And, you know, that has to do with politics, size, whatever, you know, the market you're in. But Roger was a great performer, a uh, very good athlete, and uh, I, I loved working down there with those guys. That was a lot of fun. And th- that was a, a learning process, too, for me. You know, the more different guys you went in the ring with, the better you were going to be because you're going to take something from one or two things from each guy and say, ooh, that, that, that's a new one, you know, and, and put it in your repertoire and, you know, use it. So it was it was fun working with the veterans like that. Oh yeah, and then another one I mentioned too was uh, like I said, Jerry Brown, another established uh, veteran at that time. I mean, another guy that could work well in tag teams. Oh, he was fantastic. Yeah, he was. In fact, I don't even know where he went after that, or did he? I I, I never kept track of him, but uh, he was great there. But uh, I guess I never you know crossed paths with him again or something after that. Okay, I'm going to put the, the final segment over to uh, the Grizzled Vet, uh, Mike McCurdy. We have time for just a couple of questions here, Mike, before we uh, wrap things up with our guest on Wrestling Memories Then and Now, Mr. Electricity, Steve Regal. Well, I definitely want to put this out on the table. I would love to have Steve back on as a, for uh, I'd be the third time, so then we could talk to you know the WWF territory and all that, because I'm sure there are some stories coming from that as well. But earlier in the interview, you actually mentioned uh, the current thing. You mentioned AEW. Um, I'm just kind of curious. We're going to go you know, to today. Do you follow any of the current product? Do you kind of keep up on what's kind of going on with, you know, NWA, AEW, MLW, and all the other options available now? Uh, well, I'll be honest with you. I don't watch them on TV. I don't watch any wrestling on TV anymore. I don't have, you know, I'm retired. Uh, TV's not the thing I do. I watch it late at night movies and stuff, but I don't watch wrestling. But I, I, I'm on uh, Twitter and that's where I saw all this stuff happening. You know, I've been on Twitter for like a year and a half or something like that. And I see the guys, uh, Nick Aldi and these guys, ADW, and I've seen some of their clips and I've heard their stories and, you know, Cody Rhodes and the guys starting out. And I'm all for anybody competing with Vince McMahon. You know what I'm saying? And from what I can uh, look and see, AEW's ratings are higher than WWE's. Uh, in certain markets, or I, overall, I'm not sure how that works, but... If they're doing that, then they're doing a good job. You know what I'm saying? They got a good TV. They got good whatever they're whatever product they're putting out there is doing well. If they're defeating Vince, because Vince has had a monopoly now for so long that you know it's going to be hard to buck him out of the show. But AEW, the NWA, starting I'm all for competition because that opens up the door for more wrestlers. Number one, number two, it opens up the door for more competition. So there's more pay for the wrestlers that you use. And more people and more butts in the seats for or more shows on TV for money. And that's what it's all about. So uh, I, I think that uh, I don't watch them regularly. I've never watched a full match of AEW. I've seen highlights on the Twitter and the guys' names and stuff. And Cody Rhodes, of course, he's a uh, son of a legend. And I just uh, want them to do well because, you know, we can't just have it be like just having one TV station. You know, WWE is the only wrestling channel there is, you know, and that can't be, you know, if that stays in, in line, and I don't think it will. I think AEW has broken the mold, and the people that come in uh, in the future are going to realize, you know, take their game plan and make it work too to where there be four or five other places you could go and work as a wrestler and make money without having to work for Vince. So that's just my opinion. Yeah, as far as the AEW thing goes, that's a uh, – it's 
NXT and AEW, they both air on Wednesday nights. So it's, there, there's your ratings. And NXT is the third WWE brand. And yes, I believe seven weeks in a row, AEW has had a higher rating than um, NXT. So right now the fans are showing, you know, what their interest. And I watch both. I'm, I'm a professional wrestling junkie. I try to watch as much of everything as possible to kind of get an idea of what's going on out there. But, you know, speaking of, you know, you say you're retired and all that and you're enjoying the retired life and all that. Have you done any of the, you know, the, the conventions, the meet and greets, you know, CAC, anything like that? Is that something you've done? Well, I've been asked a lot. I went to one uh, about two years ago, a year and a half up in New Jersey or I think New York or New York, somewhere up there. I don't need the money. I don't need the uh, signing artists. I don't need the celebrity status. You know, I, I'm not into that. I was in it for the money. I don't care how big a star it was. I just want to get paid. And, and a sport that I had a lot of fun with and I respect immensely. But, uh, no, I've had some calls, and I think the words got around that, you know, Steve doesn't go to those. And, and I don't, unless they come down to Fort Lauderdale. But, you know, they haven't done that yet. But I'm not going to travel. And, and uh, I hate flying on planes. I fly on planes uh, over 500,000 miles. I had frequent flyer miles. I flew my family out to Hawaii back three twice, I think, and because uh, of the frequent flyer miles. And, and, and the flying nowadays, they got plastic bench seats, and, you know, there's first class is out of sight to, you know, buy a ticket that, like that. So I don't like to fly. I don't want to travel. I'm here on my I'm, – I'm looking right now. I'm looking out at the ocean. I'm about uh, two blocks from it, and uh, I'm very happy where I am. It's warm. I don't have to ever wear a jacket hardly, and uh, I'm happy with my life, happy what I've done. I've accomplished everything I set out to do, and my wife, God bless her, stayed with me for 48 years. Well, I'd like to thank you, you know, for, you know, taking the time to come out and do, because, you know, the radio show is the podcast and all. That's another way you can, you know, kind of get out there and share your stories and, you know, let listeners yeah, this know is more easy. about your <laughs> And you don't have to this leave. All I got to do is talk. There you go. Yeah. Well, it looks like time has uh, run out here for this edition of Wrestling Memories Then and Now. I think a part three with Mr. Electricity, Steve Regal, was probably, it's probably going to be getting booked here in 2020, man. We're going to love to have you back because we, we we just got a little bit more. We just we just chipped at it a little bit more here on your, your yeah, long I career. Oh, yeah, I could talk for hours. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. Thank you, though, for taking time and from your wonderful retirement to uh, chat with us. It's in much respect. No yeah. problem, bye. No problem, guys. Keep in touch. For Mr. Electricity, Steve Regal, the Grizzle Vet Mike McCurdy, I'm Glenn Broggett. This has been Rasslin' Memories Then and Now.